Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Jim Taylor will join us to discuss how to survive and thrive when bad things happen. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, what to do when bad things happen? How can you cultivate an opportunity mindset in a crisis? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Jim Taylor. Dr. Taylor is an internationally recognized for his work in the psychology of critical performance, author of 17 books and lead editor of four textbooks. He's published more than 700 articles in scholarly and popular publications, given several workshops and presentations throughout the world. He has penned the new book, How to Survive and Thrive When Bad Things Happen, Nine Steps to Cultivating an Opportunity Mindset in a Crisis. Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Uh, it's actually a real pleasure and an honor, Charles. I appreciate it. Certainly our pleasure. Certainly a very important book, especially in these times. I'm curious, why did you decide to write the book? Well, it's interesting. Obviously, it came out well before the COVID pandemic, but in my work with different organizations, whether business or philanthropic or what have you, as well as, well as with high-level performers in a lot of different areas, um, the issue of crisis came up regularly um, and different levels of crises and different types of crises. And it just seemed like something that just spoke to me and said, a book needs to be written about how to deal with a crisis of any sort uh, at a very practical level. How do we define a crisis? My formal definition is any event or situation that arises suddenly and that disrupts our lives and threatens the status quo. And clearly the, the COVID pandemic has done that in spades. And not only that, but that has long-term, both short-term and long-term harmful consequences for individuals and groups of different sizes, from schools to towns to states to countries to the world in this case. And I, I think one of the interesting things is really looking at some of the qualities of a crisis. What makes a crisis a crisis? So first of all, it's unexpected. And yes, Charles, certainly some experts in, in past years have said this is going to happen, but nobody really expected it to happen quite in this way. So it's like an all-of-a-sudden thing. Also, importantly, it creates instability. So the things we, can, we could count on, we no longer can count on. It disrupts our lives in, in very significant ways. Um, another big thing that, that I emphasize a lot of my work, especially with crises, is that they're unfamiliar, they're unpredictable, and they're uncontrollable. Those are three qualities, and, and we as humans, we're wired to want a world that's familiar, predictable, and controllable, because within that world, we have a better chance of surviving, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. And I think what's also very powerful about the qualities of a crisis is that it's experienced as trauma, and there are many forms of trauma, as we are seeing here. Obviously, physical trauma of getting, getting COVID, um, psychological trauma of the stress of the financial challenges that many of us face. Um, in response to the shutdowns, um, social and political, and we've seen that occur in the U.S. tremendously. Um, very importantly is our emotional reactions, um, ones that we might not necessarily see, but that often manifest themselves in various degrees of depression, anxiety, fear, 
Um, and what ultimately I think we're going to see quite a bit of in the next um, few years is a lot of post-traumatic stress. So you mentioned you know, our brains evolved really to prefer stability. Are we just now wired correctly to deal with these sudden unexpected events? Well, that's what's really interesting. And so let's travel back in time about 250,000 years to the Serengeti and when humans first became officially homo sapiens. And even farther back, since we climbed out of the primordial muck. And so we are wired. Our most fundamental drive is to survive. Our fun, most fundamental instinct is to survive. And so let's go back in time again, and we're on the Serengeti, and we come upon something or someone that threatens our life. It could be a saber-toothed tiger, or it could be a rival tribesman with a really big club. And what that does is we, we instantly perceive uh, a threat to our survival, and that crisis that experiencing, it's immediate. It's right there. It's in our face. It's clear. It's tangible. There is no ambiguity what, what is going to happen if we don't act. And what will happen is we'll be pummeled to death or, or eaten. Now, let's take that primitive crisis and move it forward in time to now to modern crises. So for most people, certainly those listening on NPR, there aren't a lot of saber-toothed tigers in Trenton or San Francisco or Chicago or Miami or Dallas. Um, there are many rival tribes people with big clubs. And so those, the threats we're experiencing now are very different than the ones we experienced then. Looking at COVID, for example. As I mentioned before, it was un largely unforeseeable, certainly to lay people, and not readily understandable. It's often distant and indirect. So very few of us, the reality is, yes, COVID has affected a lot of people uh, physically, and certainly a lot of deaths, but the vast majority of Americans haven't had to face it uh, um, head on, and yet it's having an effect on us. Also, unlike the immediate threat of the Serengeti 250,000 years ago, the uh, modern-day threats, such as COVID, they're delayed. And they're often lingering. And as we're going to see, this crisis is going to impact us for decades, perhaps. And what's especially challenging for modern day crises is that it's beyond our individual control or even our sort of local control as well. So there's not a lot we can actually do to deal with the crisis itself of COVID. Um, there are specific things, yes, we can do. But um, in terms of wearing masks, six foot social distancing and so on. But the crises that we face now are dramatically different than those that we faced 250,000 years ago or 5 million years ago when we were lizards, let's say. And so a thesis in my book is that what worked then doesn't work now. So, again, the crises that we're facing, they're hitting the same systems that we're running away from the tiger about to eat us, but the response is not going to be quite the same. So how then do we deal with overactive part of our brain that's being triggered? Sure. Great, great question, Charles. And so I make a distinction in my book between a crisis mentality and an opportunity mindset. So crisis mentality is exactly that, that primitive reaction to a threat to our survival it's, that, ser that served us well for, for many, many um, eons. And I'm going to give you a brief neuroanatomy lesson for our audience. To a trigger, what's at the heart of this crisis mentality is the amygdala. And the amygdala is this little structure in the base of our brain, in the primitive part of our brain, through which all information flows initially, because it ensures that we have a rapid response if that information is threatening. So again, going back in time, Serengeti, 250,000 years ago, rival tribesmen. We see it, the rival tribesmen, through our amygdala, immediately triggers our survival instinct. And we perceive it instantaneously as a threat. Because back in that situation, we didn't have time to stand back and ponder and go, okay, what's the situation here? What do we do? What's the best reaction? If we did that, 
we would have been pummeled to death. And so it triggers an immediate reaction in the form of fight or flight. Very well-known, very famous reaction that in those situations way back when, we had two options. We could either fight the fellow with the large club or we could run away from him. And yes, there's a freeze component, but it doesn't quite fit into the typical reaction. So it would create instantaneous and very intense emotions. Fear, typically fear or anger, which would help us run away as fast as possible or fight frantically with the guy with the big club. And that would then create this very powerful reaction of behavior of doing something to increase our survival. And so that reaction now doesn't work very well. And I'll use a different crisis, the Great Recession, a very common reaction that occurred after the Great Recession, during the Great Recession, when the stock market plummeted, was people pulled their money out of the stock market. As it turns out, out of panic, out of worry, out of threat that they were going to lose all their money. As it turns out, for most people, that was not a good decision. So in all kinds of these modern crises, these ones that are amorphous and indistinct and indirect, this very primitive reaction that's been hardwired into us through evolution no longer works. So that's the crisis mentality. I think a lot of people can identify with that. You're in a situation, you're just overwhelmed by these emotions. How do we deal with it? So the idea is to short circuit the connection to the amygdala, because as long as our amygdala controls us, it's going to cause that reaction of threat, survival, fight or flight, fear, anger, et cetera. We also, thankfully, we have as evolved beings, we have this thing on top of our head called the prefrontal cortex, which is part of the cerebral cortex, which is what separates us from animals. The prefrontal cortex is involved in what's called executive functioning. And executive functioning does decision-making, examining choices, weighing risk-reward, planning, looking at short-term versus long-term consequences. This is what we need when a crisis strikes. Because, again, fight or flight simply won't work. And so what the prefrontal cortex and executive functioning does, it enables us to stay calm to th- and basically just to think as opposed to just react. So in the opportunity mindset enables us to be purposeful because when we have a response, and I make a distinction between a reaction and a response. Reactions are instinctive manifestations of behavior. A response is a thoughtful and deliberate and focused and purposeful action taken to address the issue. And so that's sort of the starting point of having this sort of common deliberate response that comes from a positive action-oriented, solution-oriented response to the crisis. A couple of components to the opportunity mindset. One is values. This is really important, I found in my work and in writing this book and exploring people who responded well to a crisis. Now, when I talk about values, unfortunately, values have gotten sort of a bad rap because they've been hijacked as sort of political ping pong balls to be used. And I'm not talking about those kind of values. I'm talking about the values that ground us as human beings and what we believe. Because basically in a crisis like COVID, our world has been rocked. The ground on which we stand has been metaphorically destabilized. And by the way, during an earthquake, um, a flood, hurricane, the ground in which we stand has been literally destabilized and disrupted. So we need something to ground us, to make us feel more safe and more comfortable. And our values can do that. And whether it's family or, or responsibility or helping others, whatever your values are, using those as a starting point for moving forward of how to address the crisis. 
because values not only start out as a solid ground, but they also act as the North Star, that is the, providing the direction we want to go. So having those values is really important. Attitudes is also important. Because the fact is, code is affecting everybody, in economically or, or physically, and we, we can't just turn it off. So it's not the objective reality that matters here so much, but how we respond to it. And if we respond in an amygdala-driven way, in a very negative, pity-party, pessimistic way, that adds insult to injury. Because not only are we exposed to this crisis in, in all its literal forms, but we also have to deal with the stress and the worry and the doubt and, and just the anxiety of having this negative orientation toward the crisis. So a couple of attitudes that I think are really important is one is victim versus master. So it's easy to feel like I'm a victim of this situation. There's nothing I can do about it. And there's certainly a lot of things that we can't do anything about. But I really believe in taking control of that which we can. Because as I said, as I said earlier, a sense of control is essential for our psychological functioning, our comfort as, as human beings. So what can we control? Well, we can control the usual things related to COVID, as I said, masks, six feet, distancing, and washing our hands. We can also control our work lives, for them if, assuming we're able to keep our job. Uh, we can control our family life. We can control our eating and our exercise and our sleep. And by doing that, having that attitude of being in control helps us feel better. And in doing so, we're able to respond more positively to it. Another component of opportunity mindset is what I call a mindset specifically, and that's having an optimistic and a consistent mindset. Because one thing for sure, Charles, COVID is incredibly consistent. It just keeps plodding along, infecting more and more people. We also need to be optimistic because that will cause optimistic action. And also we need to be consistent in our actions to ensure that we do what's most safe. And unfortunately, we've seen a lot of people who haven't been consistent in their actions to prevent the spread. And that's hurting themselves potentially, but also hurting so many other people. So those are a few key components of my opportunity mindset. And, and really what it comes down to when it, when it comes to taking action is first having a clear understanding of the path forward. So what do we need to do as individuals, as families, and as a society? What is the best path forward? Without a lot of misinformation, without a lot of politics, just what does the science say is the best path forward? Second is having a method to the madness. Because right, a crisis creates madness, and that creates chaos and frantic behavior and urgency. And so being able to have a system moving forward, and we've had it to a large extent, to of what we need to do at all levels of our society, that methodology creates familiarity and predictability, which creates a level of commitment. Last point about opportunity mindset action is being decisive, making that commitment to this is what we are doing as an individual, as a family, as a city, as a state, as a country, as a world to combat this crisis and get over the crisis. And that's also where we've seen some challenges at a lot of different levels. So that's sort of my basic framework here. And if we have time, I'm happy to talk about a couple of specific areas that we can do, that we can address to help people not only survive, but also thrive in this. I think a lot of people would agree that these are aspects of their mental framework that they should employ, having good values. And the, the trick, of course, comes with implementing it, uh, making it part of your regular habit. Right, right. Well, it's actually been fascinating in, in observing the changes we've made society in our country alone and all over the world, of how quickly people have established certain habits, like wearing masks in most parts of the country, like keeping um, six feet. And so it starts, and this is sort of a value thing. 
it starts with that commitment of this is really important to us. That the, the health of, our, of ourselves, of our families, of our friends, of, of the country in, as a whole, that we need to engage in these behaviors. I think the challenge now is that for many parts of the country, for many of us individually, we're not directly touched by it. So, I mean, for example, I only have known one person who got COVID. And so we're doing all these things, but nothing seems to matter. There's certainly areas of the country where getting back to reopening and quote unquote normal life, they got away from those things. What we're seeing now is a, is a spike. So it might very well be that the urgency that occurred at the beginning will reset itself. Because in terms of daily life, I, I hear this from a lot of people. It's like, I'm so over this. And yet for many people, they're not over it because a lot of people are getting sick. People are still dying. The, the economy still is struggling. And so it really starts with that commitment of what is the best thing to do? And that comes from, for me, listening to the experts, because they're the ones who know what's best. Now, do they know everything? Be, no, because this is a, a fairly unique experience for, for the world and for experts in the medical field and the, and the, and the financial and economic fields. But it starts at that level of, of believing that this is important for us to do. So I'm going to stick with it until I hear from the experts not to do it. And then creating some social support within the family. This is what we're doing as a family. This is what we're doing in our neighborhood. We're going to be respectful. We're going to follow the rules. And that's going to reduce the chances of this getting worse and hopefully increase the speed at which it gets better. And what happens is also there gets to be some sort of social pressure. If everybody's wearing masks, well, then you feel that sort of cultural pressure to wear masks. Plus, of course, you go into a store in most places in the country now, you have to wear a mask to go in. Although I have been in a couple of places recently where I was surprised that people weren't wearing masks, even in states where it's mandated. Um, so you create that social pressure as well. So those are a couple of key things that, that people can do. But ultimately, they have to believe that it's important for their own welfare, for that of their family, and then for the larger community of our country and the world. Beyond, of course, COVID, beyond the general situation we're in right now, these are, of course, great pieces of advice generally for how we approach dealing with the, the unexpected events in our lives. Sure. Well, first of all, is being able to make that distinction between a crisis mentality and an opportunity mindset. And the crisis mentality, that reaction simply isn't going to work. And then having that awareness of, okay, I need to engage my prefrontal cortex, my executive functioning, that opportunity mindset, and, and make decisions about COVID that this crisis that are calm and deliberate and thoughtful and focus on what will produce a solution. Make that commitment to yourself within, within your family. Make that commitment to follow the, the, the guidelines that, that are, we understand are, are healthy and positive and, and that recognize that everybody's working together to try to solve this to get, as, as a group um, collectively. So those are a couple of basic things that people can do, but ultimately it boils down to how important do you think it is to follow these guidelines? Well, we were just talking with Dr. Jim Taylor. He's the author of the new book, How to Survive and Thrive When Bad Things Happen, Nine Steps to Cultivating an Opportunity Mindset in a Crisis. Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. My pleasure, Charles. I've really enjoyed it. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.